Good morning. For those that don't know me, I'm David, one of the pastors here. Our text this morning is John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. We continue our study of the Gospel of John, and it is my joy to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, If you're able, please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to stir our affections for you. Father, help me to rightly handle your word of truth. Pray that you would bring us to rivers of living water, that you would plant us there, plant us deep so that we can grow. And Father, help us to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, Pastor Joe took us through John chapter 8, verses, verse uh, 53, 52. So why is it that I started this morning in verse 12? Why did I just skip over the story of the woman caught and adultery. In answer, I'd like to briefly address three questions about 753 to 811. Is the text original to the book of John? Is the text canon? And should the text be preached? The questions get progressively harder. The first question is, is the text original to the book of John? There are very few Bible scholars who believe the text is original to the book of John. Both the external and internal evidence is quite compelling that it was added at a later time. Early manuscripts do not contain this section. Later manuscripts contain the passage in five different places in the New Testament. The earliest church fathers omit the passage when they're commenting on the book of John. In fact, 
the text flows nicely from 752 to 812 if you just read the passage without the story there. Plus, the vocabulary and style are different from the rest of John. So the evidence is quite compelling that it was not original to the book of John. The second question, is the text canon? Some well-known Bible scholars would say that the story is not original to the book of John, but should still be considered canon. The most compelling of these arguments say that the story really happened, that it doesn't teach any doctrines not found elsewhere in the New Testament, and that the passage has been helpful to the church through the ages. This is, addresses some, but not all of the elements of a robust definition of canon. A robust definition of New Testament canon contains four qualities. Number one, that it was written by or closely connected to an apostle. Number two, that it is already in common usage by the early church. Number three, that it is theologically orthodox, not contradicting any other part of scripture, and number four, it is discerned as bearing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So according to Scott Kosgorowski, the passage did not reach its written form until the third century. So we don't know for sure that it was written by an apostle and that it was used by the early church. So the case for canonicity of the text falls short. This brings us to the third and most difficult question, should the text be preached? In prayerful consultation with the Council of Elders, here's my conclusion. It's not part of the original book of John, so I won't preach it as we go through John. However, it would be profitable for one of us to teach it at another time not to preach it as any other text, but to start out with an in-depth discussion of textual criticism and then preach the truth of the narrative sourced in other passages that are clearly canon. So that's why we're starting with verse 12 today. Now, having cracked open the door of the science of textual criticism, let me say this about scripture. God has preserved his word. The variations in the Bible, like what we just talked about, are small. Not one of them would change a single Christian doctrine. For example, no truth that the Gospel of John teaches is changed by the omission of 753 to 8.11. F.F. Bruce put it this way, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. Frederick Kenyon writes, it is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands, in substantial integrity, the veritable word of God. John Piper explains, 
So when I agree with the vast majority of scholars that the story of the woman taken in adultery was not in the Gospel of John, you should not think, oh my, everything is now up for grabs, or how can I count on any text? On the contrary, you should be thankful that God has in his sovereign providence over the transmission process for 2,000 years, ordered things so that the few uncertainties that remain alter no doctrine of the Christian faith. This is really astonishing when you think about it, and we should worship God because of it. God has preserved his word. So let's focus now on John 8, 12 to 20. In our text, we'll see that Jesus has the light to, to live by. First, we'll see that Jesus is the light of the world. Next, that we, his followers, have the light of life. Finally, that Jesus' testimony is true for three reasons. It's true because of his divine origin and destination, because the Father judges with him, and because the Father is his witness. First, Jesus is the light of the world. Verse 12 starts out with the word again. If we assume that when John wrote the Gospels, he did not include 753 to 811, then 812 attaches itself to 752. So when he says again, it means again he spoke to the people still in the context of the Feast of Booths. As we have seen, John ties much of his narrative to various Old Testament feasts. In all of these, prophetically foreshadow Christ. In chapter 7, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the eight days of the feast, the Jews would build simple booths to live in. The purpose of the festival was to remind them of how they wandered in the wilderness and how God provided for them. It was marked by celebrations and parties and featured water-drying rituals full of symbolism. Pastor Joe explained last week how these water-drying rituals pointed to Jesus, the source of rivers of living water. The daily water-pouring ceremony had its nightly counterpart. Every evening during the Feast of Booths, there would be a lamp-lighting ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple. Priests would climb tall ladders to light four huge lamps the size of bathtubs. Some accounts say that the flame from the lamps would illuminate not just the temple area, but much of Jerusalem. The lamps alluded to the pillar of fire in the wilderness. During the Exodus, God's Shekinah glory was manifested as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It showed that God dwelt with his people. In our study of chapter 7, we talked about how the Feast of Tabernacles points us to Emmanuel, God with us. John says in 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. The word there is tabernacled among us. It was also 
a pillar of fire that stood between the children of Israel and the Egyptian army. It was their salvation. It's what stood between them and slavery and death. Some Bible commentators believe that during the lamplighting ceremony, the Jews would sing Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. At the Feast of Booths, all of these elements would have come together. It would have come together in a powerful way. The Old Testament scriptures, the, the rituals, the psalms, the meaning of the festival itself. This is the context of the word again in verse 12. This is the scene steeped in Old Testament allusions into which Jesus speaks. Yet so many did not have ears to hear or eyes to see. John says in chapter 1, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 20 gives us two additional pieces of information about the scene. First, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The lamplighting ceremony took place in the court of women. The treasury wasn't a building, but a location in the court of women with 13 great offering chests. These chests were called shofar chests because they were shaped like shofars or trumpets. According to William Barclay, the trumpets promoted a program of designated giving. The first two trumpets were for half shekels, which every Jew had to pay for the upkeep of the temple. The second two trumpets were for offerings for rites of purification. The fifth trumpet was for wood for sacrifice. The sixth trumpet was for incense. The seventh was for the upkeep of the golden vessels of the temple. The remaining six were for love offerings and undesignated giving. In the temple, the outside court was the court of Gentiles. Then the middle court was the court of women. And finally, you had the court of Israel, where only Jewish men were allowed to enter. Both Mark and Luke record the account of the poor widow. She deposited two small copper coins, all she had to live in, on. And that took place in the treasury, in the court of women. This would have been a very busy part of the temple, and Jesus would have been speaking to a large crowd. Verse 20 goes on to tell us a second thing about the scene. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This also continues the theme that we saw in chapter 7, in which Jesus follows God's timetable. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The Feast of Booths isn't the right time to die. He's waiting for the Passover, in which he will reveal himself as the Passover lamb. He's sovereign. He's in control. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. All of this helps us understand the theme. The Feast of Booths, the lamplighting ceremony, the great pillar of fire 
the crowded temple, there's scarcely a more dramatic way to announce what follows. I am the light of the world. This is another I am statement in the book of John. Each reveals different aspects of Christ as God and his work as Savior. As you remember, I am was one of God's names for himself in the Old Testament. The reference to light would have been loaded with meaning to the Jews as well, not only because of God's Shekinah glory in the pillar of fire, but because of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Isaiah 42, uh, we see that the Messiah will be the light to the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out from the prison those who sit in darkness. In Isaiah 49.6, God says to the Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's why Simeon, when Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby, said in Luke 2.29 to 32, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Matthew says that Jesus' ministry in Galilee was to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Quoting Isaiah 9, Matthew 4, 14, and 16 says that these things happened so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We need to understand the impact that his words had. I am the light of the world. The Jews would have understood this as Jesus claiming to be the Messiah sent by the Father. In Jesus, we have light to live by because he is the light of the world. Now, verse 12, Jesus not only tells us something about himself, but something about his followers as well. This brings us to our second point. His followers have the light of life. Verse 12 continues, whoever follows me. Now, following the light of the world is an appropriate thing to do. Israel followed the pillar of fire in the wilderness, and when it moved, the entire camp moved. And when it stopped, they stopped. Sometimes... We claim to be followers of Jesus, but then wander off and do our own thing. Instead of looking to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we see Jesus as one more thing we add to our life, one more thing we collect along the way. But Jesus bids us, come, follow me. To be followers of Jesus means that we walk in obedience. We obey his word. We seek to kill sin in our life and become more like him. Verse 12 goes on to say, 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Scripture describes the darkness of our fallen world. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that those who do not know God are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Romans chapter 1 describes general revelation. Unlike special revelation through Scripture, general revelation is revealed to all mankind through creation. As a result of general revelation, we are without excuse. Romans 1.21 continues, For although they, mankind, knew God through general revelation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But into this sin-darkened world comes Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He doesn't leave us in darkness. In Colossians 1.13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus pierces the darkness with his light, and we, his followers, will have the light of life. The light of life means the light that gives light. It's the eternal life, which is ours through the person and work of Christ in the gospel. The Greek word for have in verse 12 means to hold or to possess. We hold or possess the light of life. If we have the light of life, what are we to do with it? If we possess the gospel, what is our responsibility? If we hold the light which gives life, do we just keep it to ourselves? Perhaps that's why in Matthew, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Earlier, we talked about Simeon. When Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and he said, Now I can die in peace, now that I have seen the Messiah. Then he partially quotes Isaiah 49.6 and applies it to Jesus. There's another place in the New Testament that this prophecy from Isaiah is quoted. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. The Jews are filled with jealousy because so many Gentiles are, are believing in the gospel. Acts 13, to 46 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. 
But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of, the, of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the, God, uh, the Gentiles. Then something truly remarkable happens. They cite Isaiah 49.6, the prophecy about the Messiah. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, wait a minute, there's a, there's a problem here. In Isaiah 49.6, God commands the Messiah to be the light to the nations. The Messiah is to be the light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. But in Acts, Paul and Barnabas apply that command to us, to the followers of Jesus. They say, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, and then they quote Isaiah 49.6. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the Old Testament is filled with rich traditions and ceremonies that point to that. But he also tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. So what's happening? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then he tells us to make disciples. Jesus invites us to join him on mission. He calls us to enter with him into the mission of making disciples, that his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We have been invited to be part of something greater than ourselves, to be part of the greatest mission in the history of mankind. We have been commissioned by none other than the Son of God, the creator of the universe. Sometimes we treat this gift as if it was a burden. We act as if this privilege was a chore. May we repent of our reluctance to be part of this great eternal work. May we joyfully make disciples. In Jesus, we have light to live by because he is the light of the world. His followers have the light of life. Third, Jesus' testimony is true. There are three reasons for the credibility of Jesus' testimony. It's true because of his divine origin and destination. It's true because his father judges with him. And it's true because the father is his witness. Verses 12, or I'm sorry, 13 and 14. <clears throat> so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. If you're getting the feeling of deja vu all over again, it's because Jesus had a similar conversation 
back in chapters 5 and in chapter 7. You'll remember that in chapter 5, the Jews go from interest in Jesus with reservation to rejection of Jesus without reservation. They begin a persecution of Jesus that continues all the way to the cross. John 5.18 tells us why. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In chapter 5, Jesus backs up his claim with a list of witnesses. John the Baptist bore witness of him. The Old Testament scriptures bore witness. His miracles bore witness of him. In 537, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. There were also similar conversations in chapter 7. <clears throat> the people of Jerusalem were debating whether he was the Messiah. Well, maybe he is, but maybe he's not because we know where he's from. So Jesus explains in John 7, 29, I know him, the Father, for I can't. I come from him, and he sent me. In chapter 8, Jesus is once again providing light on his divine nature. If only they could see it. Unfortunately, the Pharisees aren't interested in truth. They're trying to pin something on him that the Romans would care about so they can put him to death. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of lying. You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Well, obviously, something can be true, whether it's substantiated by witnesses or not. Jesus replies with three reasons why his testimony is true. Each relate to his deity, the very reason that the Pharisees were trying to kill him. The first support for the credibility of Jesus' testimony is because of his divine origin and destination. Jesus said, I know where I come from and where I am going. The Pharisees thought they knew where he was from. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was a Galilean. But Micah 5.2 said the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So he couldn't possibly be the Christ. Not only were the Pharisees wrong about where he was born, but they didn't understand his heavenly origin. Jesus was qualified to testify about himself because he was from heaven. The Pharisees were not qualified to testify about him. They didn't even understand where he was from. In the prologue, John tells us, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. When without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The Pharisees also didn't understand his destination. Once accomplishing the purpose for which he came, he would return to heaven. Hebrews 10, 12 tells us, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The testimony of Jesus is true because he came from heaven. The testimony of Jesus is true because he returns to heaven, having accomplished all the Father gave him to do. There's an application here for us. Jesus gave up heaven 
to give us heaven? Is there anyone who has sacrificed more for you than Jesus? Is there anyone who has done more to earn your trust than Jesus? So why don't you trust him? You may say, I do, I'm a Christian. But I ask again, why don't you trust him? Are there areas of sin in your life because you don't trust Jesus? Areas where you're not trusting him to provide for you, to meet your needs, to be sufficient for you. Trust the one who gave up heaven to give you heaven. The second support for the credibility of Jesus' testimony is because his father judges with him. Verses 15 and 16, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but the Father who sent me. The Pharisees are judging according to the flesh. They're judging according to fallen, human, worldly standards. There's no discernment of the Holy Spirit in their judgment. I judge no one. What does Jesus mean when he says that he doesn't judge? I mean, after all, one day he will judge the world. D.A. Carson says, Jesus means he does not judge anyone at all the way his opponents do, meaning he does not appeal to the superficial fleshly criteria and accordingly mark people up or down. If that is what his opponents mean by judging, Jesus does not do any of it. Another possibility is that he means he doesn't judge anyone yet. During his earthly ministry, Jesus doesn't come as the judge of the world, but as its savior. John 12, 47, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. In verse 16, Jesus goes on to explain that it's not if he doesn't judge in any sense, he judges with true judgment. He's had this discussion with the Pharisees before. In chapter 5, we're told the Son has been given unique authority to judge because of who he is. And one day he will judge the living and the dead. John 5, 27 and 28. And he, the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. But in this area, as in every area, Jesus does not judge alone, but with his Father. John 5.30 goes on to say, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It would be worthwhile to pause here a moment and reflect on how we judge. Like the Pharisees, are we judging according to the flesh? Are we judging according to fallen human worldly standards? Or do we judge like Jesus? He judges with true judgment. How do we do that? How do we judge with true judgment? The world is bombarding us with values, with assertions of the truth, telling us what we need, how to act, how to think. 
to judge with true judgment. We must be people of the word. Otherwise, we will simply be reflections of the culture around us. Throughout Psalm 119, the psalmist describes God's word as our standard of truth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Oh, friends, how we need to be in the word of God and how we need the word of God in us. His word is living and active and brings discernment. We must be people of the word to judge as Jesus did. Jesus' testimony is true because of his divine origin and destination. Jesus' testimony is true because he does not judge alone but with his Father. Finally, Jesus' testimony is true because the Father is his witness. Verses 17 to 19. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Here, the Pharisees appeal to the law. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. The person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The irony is that they appeal to the law, but the Old Testament law itself bears witness of Jesus. Even by their own standards, they're wrong. Rather than being law observant, the Pharisees were in fact hostile to the law's true and ultimate fulfillment in Christ. If they had ears to hear and eyes to see, the Pharisees would understand that God the Father bore witness of Jesus through the Old Testament scriptures. His witness was none other than God himself. They ask where is your father? D.A. Carson explains, by their question, the Pharisees are admitting that they really do not know who Jesus is. Worse, their inability to recognize Jesus testifies that they do not know God himself. How could they? They were still judging by human standards. If they had really recognized who he was, they would have known the father also not only because Jesus reveals the Father so that to truly know Jesus is to know the Father, but also because special revelation from God is required to know who Jesus is. Simply put, the Pharisees didn't know Jesus because they were spiritually dead. The Old Testament law that they claimed to follow spoke of him. The festivals, 
illustrated different aspects of his person and work. The rituals of the festival of booths pointed to him. The Old Testament prophets talked about him. John the Baptist bore witness to him. His miracles shouted to them of his authenticity, but they didn't recognize Jesus, nor did they know God the Father. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The word of God floors those who have ears to hear. As we consider our salvation, we fall at his feet, humbled by his grace, his unmerited favor. The more we understand the holiness of God, the more we understand the depth of our sin, and the more we understand the enormity of our salvation, and it bows us to the ground. So as we close today, we see that Jesus is the light to live by because he is the light of the world. Not only that, but we, his followers, have the light of life. Jesus speaks truth because of his divine origin and destination. Jesus judges only as he hears the Father judge, and so his judgment is true. And finally, God himself is a witness of the veracity of his claim, I am the light of the world.